This is an ABC podcast. Last week, we learnt of the death of Barry Humphreys. Barry Humphreys and his monstrous creations from the Australian suburbs have been with us for over six decades. Dame Edna Everidge arose from the swamps of Mooney Ponds to conquer the Australian stage. Then she stormed the West End and then Broadway at last succumbed to her forceful personality. Over the years, Barry Humphreys often left me in fits of helpless, gasping laughter. And in all those years, it's remarkable that Edna and her compatriot, Sir Leslie Colin Patterson, never lost their shock value. The life of Edna is one thing, but the life of Barry Humphreys is, if anything, even more bizarre. I know this because I read his memoir called More Please when it came out in the early 1990s. I think More Please is a masterpiece of its kind and one of the great Australian autobiographies. And if you can dig it out of a library or a second-hand bookshop, it's well worth your time. I spoke to Barry Humphreys in 2009 on the release of the unauthorised biography of Dame Edna called Handling Edna. And I began by asking Barry why he said he wished he'd never met Edna. Well, it's really changed my life. I thought of this as just a... kind of a stunt at university, a one-night stand. In fact, I I wrote a little sketch about the Olympic Games in which Edna was offering her beautiful home in Mooney Ponds to accommodate an overflow of migrants and Olympic visitors in 19... far off 1956. And I thought that was the end of her. I put her in a box and every time I took her out, she was better dressed and more assertive. And now she's a very dominant figure. And I felt that the truth about her life needed at last to be told. She's your golem, isn't she? She's going to strangle you. Golem is a very good description. I'd never thought of her as that. (laughs) That monster that terrorised the Prague ghetto all those years ago. A golem in a mauve wig, yes. (laughs) (laughs) A kind of a Gentile golem. (laughs) Very Gentile, indeed. (laughs) Did she distract you from becoming an artist, a visual artist? It may be just as well she did, because although I'm a very good painter, I'm not up there with uh, the best. This is a rare moment of modesty that she... That you've induced, <laughs> Richard. But um, I think painting is something that I like to do on the side. And uh, although I've had successful exhibitions, I, uh, I don't paint all that often, mostly on vacation. Though I love what I do, I look at my own pictures with shameless admiration. <laughs> well, I've always admired your line drawings, t- to be honest. I always like lo- lo- like those. When did you when did you start pe- realizing you had a bit of a flair for? Well, when drawing? I was at school, uh, and I was the child of a builder. My father was a builder of suburban houses. Hence, my continued interest in where people live, where members of my audience live. But he also drew rather well, and so he would sometimes draw the body, and then I would draw the head or I would draw the head and he would draw the body. It was a little father-son collaboration, which I've only just recalled, thanks indeed to you, this magic gift that you have of interviewing (laughs) people, drawing people out in this interview program. But I love drawing and I'm a very good caricaturist. I think of myself really as a theatrical caricaturist and I do have a knack. I I can draw only unkind pictures of people. There's nothing very... I can't, for example, draw my wife. 
but certainly I can draw my ex-wife. All of them. <laughs> There's a certain mad flourish in your line. That's what I like about it. There's a kind of a little bit of a little bit of mad flourish there, which I think, which you really need to be a fine. Yes, fine it's sort of an arabesque. An arabesque, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were a famous Melbourne University dataist, and uh, I, I suppose that's where we begin with your 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 ongoing love of what you call the uncalled for in this world. A love for the uncalled for, for, mm. for the unnecessary. The unnecessary, for. yes. I, uh, I I still think of myself as a dataist. Even when I try to become respectable, I'm still able to give deep offence. It pleases me, really. It means I'm alive. I discovered the Dada movement, which flourished and well, it began really in 1916 in Zurich and then spread right over Europe during the uh, early 20s. It was a reaction, really, to the seriousness of art and it became an art in itself. I own some drawings by Picabia, for example, an artist I particularly like, not because he was a great artist, but as a personality he was a significant 20th century figure. And uh, I held several exhibitions when I was at the university, and uh, some of the exhibits were confiscated by prim, puritanical, old Melman Grammar boys, in particular a rather simple jest a, t- a school tie around a beer bottle <laughs> with the title Old Fool's Tie. <laughs> well, <laughs> nothing too witty or incisive about it, but it did offend at least one extremely unpleasant person. Let, let's do, and, and another <laughs> one, which I believe was a gumboot full of custard, which you called Pussin' Boots. Yes, that well. was sensational. <laughs> and uh, I, I was very pleased with another thing which I made out of shoes because I've always had this shoe fetish. I found a lot of old boots nailed to a board, and that was called (laughs) My Fetus Killing Me. (laughs) Spelled F-O-E-T-U-S. A pun, but quite a good one, (laughs) which I look back on with a certain fatuous self-satisfaction. One of the things uh, about Dadaism, of course, people often see the absurdity and a bit of the humour that's often there with Dadaism. Mm. There's a ferocity there, though, too, isn't there? There's a bit of rage and a bit of... There was quite a lot of rage, and I had a fair bit in me at the time. I felt frustrated and, of course, very anxious. Behind all that, of course, was, uh, was fear, because I still lived at home, you see. I wasn't all that liberated. I lived at home, in fact... At one point, I think I got married only to le- in order to leave home. Not a very good... And if there are young, impressionable people listening, that's not a good reason for getting married. <laughs> no, no. One thing I always get from reading through your, several of your memoirs is that pretty much right from the get-go, as, as, as soon as you started going to university, people began to prophesize failure for you. And this came from your family and from people around you. And... It seems, it's reading this, that part of you believed, almost believed that they were right in your heart of hearts. At the well, time. it's hard not to. I remember when I made one of my first recordings, there, were, there was a f- couple called the Manns, Peter and Ruth Mann, who in a suburb of Melbourne had a sort of back, sort of home-based recording studio. And they made some interesting records of jazz and folk singers and also of some of my early monologues. And, and Max Harris, who at the time 
quite a famous writer, a victim, really, of the, the Earn Malley hoax, yes. <laughs> uh, embittered all his life over that. Max reviewed it and he said... Um, it was an all... It, he, I remember the phrase. He said it was always an open question how long Barry Humphreys would last. Now, when you're young and someone writes that about you, you begin to wonder, an open question? There are people speculating already on my... on the frag, fragile nature of my reputation, my fledgling reputation. And that depressed me a bit, but I survived it, as you see. I wonder if that's why you went into comedy. Because, because comedy, if, if you have an audience howling with laughter, that is irrefutable proof of success on a nightly basis. Yes. I mean, no one can gainsay that, can they? Yes, some critics can, and some journalists can. Oh, that's happened to me. They can say they're laughing at the wrong thing, they or can. they think it's funny, but it really isn't funny. They're listening to something else, you see. I've seen a comedy review where a critic ventured a comment, which ought to be a Zen Cohen, where they said, a certain comedian was not as funny as he seemed to be. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) Contemplate that for a while. (laughs) And I've had a review like, in spite of the fact that the audience was howling with laughter, (laughs) this critic, this critic, (laughs) they refer to themselves as... Was deeply disappointed, <laughs> but I waved my gladdy with the rest of them. He said, <laughs> "What a forlorn character! That is a very all. forlorn character." <laughs> you write in your book, uh, handling, and, and uh, you mentioned you you met her at a passion play in Mooney Ponds, and it's clear she was always upwardly mobile, even even back then. But but back back then, her ambitions were quite modest, weren't they? Very. They seemed to be modest. They seemed to be modest. She was just humbly asking my advice. She'd read, she said in her letter, a write-up. Anything about you in the paper was, as far as your mother and her friends were concerned, a write-up. He didn't get a very good write-up. <laughs> and, um... <laughs> well, back, back then... Effort, too. I like effort. Effort. They didn't like your effort. <laughs> and sometimes I call a show when I advertise it a new effort by Barry Humphreys. <laughs> and it is an effort, you must admit. Yes, it's an effort. It's an ordeal of kind. You have, it's an effort mm. that has to appear effortless. I've got an early recording of Edna here, which, I, which I'd love to play to you, because I, I wonder if you, if you haven't heard it for some, quite some time. This is from the, uh, your very first albums, Wildlife in Suburban, Suburbia, where Edna is singing of her, her desire to graduate from the lower-middle-class suburb of Mooney Ponds to a much more hygienic suburb of Hyatt. Tell me, tell me why Hyatt was such a desirable location for Well, there was then. a new suburb that was sometimes advertised, and you saw drawings of cream brick veneers with enormous cumulus clouds behind them and swallows darting about the porch, a little pathetic little silver birch trying to grow on the front lawn, and Hyatt's was the new Melbourne suburb. Now it's probably pretty run down. It probably might even be a slum now. <laughs> but this recording would have been made in 1958 before anyone listening was born. This is Dame Edna singing the Hyatt Waltz. I have lived all my life, schoolgirl, mother and wife, in decent suburban seclusion. But the call of the sea has created in me a curiously restless confusion. 
think I'm disloyal to my Mooney Pond soil. I adore it, but let me confess, now I'm back from abroad, I'd love to afford to change my historic address. For it's so beautifully quiet in Hyatt, where my daughter and son-in-law dwell. They've severed their bonds with beloved Mooney Ponds And I don't see why I can't as well For I'm dying to try it in Hyatt With the aid of those nice housing schemes Where the cream brick veneers stay hygienic for years In Hyatt, the place of my dreams. Please don't gather from this, I'm not going to miss the suburb in which I was born. I'll miss the old church, but I long for a birch and the bird bath upon my front lawn. The best hired homes have got hundreds of gnomes, all scattered about on the grass. They have wrought iron too in a pale dark egg blue and acres of sandblasted glass. And if you want it, you buy it in Hyatt. It's so close to the trade and the bars. As a matter of said it was just built for us. You can't really deny it for Hyatt. Hyatt. So really refined type of thought. Be that as it will make or be closer to the And Hyatt has captured my heart. Then Mrs. Edna Everidge singing the Hyatt Waltz there, and it's terribly appropriate because my guest today in conversation is Barry Humphreys, the author of the unauthorised biography of Dame Edna called Handling Edna. Thank you very much for that plug, Richard. But I did notice listening to that old recording of Edna singing, uh, her voice was much higher in those days. And when she spells Hyatt, she spells it H-I-G-H. And, of course, she wouldn't have... Because she's a Protestant. Yes. <laughs> and H is the Catholic giveaway. 
She disdains Roman Catholics, doesn't she? Does, she's, does she still do that? Quite she... bigoted. Right. I remember one of the big laughs in the early Edna shows was when she was hinting that her son was engaged to a Catholic. She never said a Catholic, but she's, she indicated beyond all doubt that this was the case. And then she spoke of the church being on a very big hill. She ah. mentioned a well-known church that was on a hill. And then she would say, after a long and baleful pause, there's no doubt about them, they always pick the best positions. <laughs> and that rang a chord. That chimed with... <laughs> Something in the audience. You've, of course, you, she was in accordance with many of the things your, your mother used to say about Catholics. Oh, yes, yes, I must admit that some of my mother's prejudices did rub off a little on it. No. Mm. You had a housekeeper where she said, look, she's a Catholic, but her house is spotless. It's spotless. With surprise, she said this. Mind you, I also remember the housekeeper going upstairs to take my mother some breakfast or some morning tea. <laughs> Uh, my mother had periods of invalid, invalidism, and, and as she went up the stairs, I was behind her, and I heard her saying, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her. <laughs> under Each her breath. step under her breath. Uh, but finally the housekeeper went, of course, in a, in a cloud of gin. But she didn't like my mother. <laughs> like many... Uh, uh... Sensitive men and women of your your era, mm. you you had strong suspicions that life lay elsewhere beyond Australian shores in those days. Tell me, tell me the the the, the thoughts and feelings you had upon getting aboard a, a ship to leave Australia in the nineteen nineteen fifties. I think. It well, was, I was sick of everything being so new, everything being so clean, and looking at faces which showed no sign of history, which to, or, and people to whom nothing had really ever happened. It was only on Anzac Day when you saw those return men marching that you saw faces that had had experienced something. So I wanted to... Well, it was something we all did. I had a grandfather, paternal grandfather, who spoke with a strong Lancashire accent. He called me Barry Boy. And it was he spoke very strangely. And it was never really explained to me that this was a regional English accent. It was just that I had a strangely spoken grandfather. I've since done very successful shows in the north of England, and I think of myself really as a northern comic. That's interesting. Why? Do you see, do you see yourself in that... Uh, in, what's the word I'm looking for? The milieu of those comics that toured those working men's clubs? Yes, I do. Because in my youth, uh, and particularly in the last years of the war, there were programmes on the radio of recordings of British comedians at the end of their careers. Every comedian had a few little acts that they did. They didn't need to have a big repertoire. They'd travel around the country and they'd do the golfing sketch or the hairdresser's sketch. And uh, at the end of their careers, they'd record them. And these records were played on the radio, probably to cheer everyone up. Uh, and to hear people, and then to go to the Tivoli in Melbourne and see old British comedians like Arthur Askey and Tommy Trinder doing their routines. I didn't understand a lot of the jokes. I saw my parents looking uneasily at each other, and I realised this was a, a special kind of joke. Subversive humour. Some kind of joke about something I didn't understand, but something my parents seemed to and wished to keep from me. All of this intrigued me. It never 
crossed my mind that one day I would do this or that I would from time to time venture into the risque, that I would in fact find myself on a stage looking down at an audience of parents smiling secretly to each other while the child stared blankly at the stage wondering what, what was going on. And I do now say to children in such a situation, you know, don't worry, one day your parents will explain that joke to you. <laughs> the old panto sketch, isn't but it? it is, but word. anyway, mm. I mean, in those days, we all went abroad. We all had to go to the old country. We were salmon returning to the spawning ground. And it was just a thing every single Australian did who could. And I got on a boat in 1959. I already had a, a small reputation. And I had an f- uncomfortable feeling that if I stayed on, I'd get very comfortable in this and I'd never leave. I'd never be able to. You'd become a wag, which I, would be I'd awful. I'd become the it? local wag. Mm. And when I came back for the first time to do a show, some of the local wags were still there. And by then they were entrenched in television shows and they never really left. So they never learnt more about their job. My wish was to see other places, to see old cities and also to learn a bit more about my job, which I did by appearing in musicals and things of that kind. Yes, and Peter Cook was an early champion of yours. And and like you, Peter Cook is one of those comedians from that time whose humour endures. And many comedians' humour pales, and that's that's no fault of theirs. Humour I mean, dates very badly. Humour dates badly. And... Um, but, but Peter Cook's material still endures. It's still wildly funny and clever and inventive and listening back to, you know, seeing old episodes of Not Only, but also it seems... It's still fresh absolutely and funny. hilarious. It is absolutely hilarious. And even those scrofulous uh, Derek and Clive dialogues right. improvised by two, by then, drunken comedians... I scream with laughter at some of that material. Well, isn't, isn't the secret of that, the, the pleasure of, that can be had from Derek and Clive, is that there's sometimes the best thing you can do in comedy is to say the worst possible thing that's at the back of your mind and everyone else's mind. Lob it out there before you even know what you're saying. It's like a form of almost automatic writing. Plonk it out in front of an audience and see what happens. I've found that. It's very often an act of desperation, but it works. I think it's a very naked art, comedy. has to be. However, I I, uh, I got on this boat and I, I ended up in Italy. Venice, imagine. Venice yes. after Melbourne. In Melbourne, the most important thing was the wet-ex, you know. <laughs> because a little flick of the wet-ex and life was fine, you know. <laughs> the Laminex kitchen would gleam again. But somehow in Venice, they'd not heard of the wet-ex. There were smells, you know. Not all agreeable. Could you drink the water back then? And no, and no. I always thought cities where you can't drink the water are very important. If you can drink the water, forget it, you know. <laughs> I always like to see non, non, non potable over the tap. Your, your first job in London, I, uh, I recall from your book, More Please, was working in an ice cream factory. Yes. There's an artist called Lawrence Dawes one of Australia's greatest artists, and he he and I were friends. He'd come over to London a few months before me. He'd got a scholarship, and I, first of all, met up with him in Rome and stayed in his studio. And then we met in London again, and he said, uh, 
What are you doing? I said, well, I'm auditioning for all these shows. I'm running out of money. He said, well, I'm going for a job. He said, it's uh, quite well paid. It's in an ice cream factory. And I said, oh, is it? And he said, yes, it's night work. So you can do your auditions in the daytime. So we went down the road. We lived very near each other in Notting Hill Gate, which was there. had not been Hugh Grantified. <laughs> it was very run down, and there'd been race riots only a few years before. We walked down to the bus stop, got on a bus to a place called Acton, to the Walls Ice Cream Factory. And I was in something called Tunnel 2, which was the Raspberry Ripple Department. And all night long, from 7 o'clock till about 7 a.m. the following day, I would stand on a conveyor belt, grasping with a spread hand packets of raspberry ripple and then transfer them to another conveyor belt. And if I dropped one, an alarm went off (laughs) because then the machine would jam. So I was taken off that. I wasn't good enough. (laughs) This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Now, Barry, it seems on, on first arrival in the UK, you were much more successful initially than, than Edna was. You were appearing in uh, Oliver, the wonderful Lionel Bart musical. You're doing very well for a while, but Dame Edna succeeded only in fits and starts to begin with. Well, I didn't go there really to do the act. I mean, even when I'd invented Edna in Melbourne, I was advised never to do it in Sydney, so I was very surprised when it kind of took off there. And I did that two-handed sketch that I'd originally done with Noel Ferrier in Melbourne with Gordon Chater in Sydney and worked very well. Well, the Olympics were topical. Then the Sydney Opera House, uh, the prize was awarded to Utzon for his design for the Opera House, and so Edna had a few words to say about that. Really, were there there enough child-mining facilities, you know? <laughs> but as for performing these characters, and that includes Sandy Stone and some of my other inventions in a show in England, I didn't even dream of doing so. But I auditioned for many, many things. It wasn't instant success, and I got a small role in Oliver, and Lionel Bart wrote a song for me, which was good. So I was often running, and I was in a long-running musical in the West End of London with an orchestra in the pit, so I was learning... Without even knowing it, you know, you do learn a lot without knowing it, I think. So then uh, the BBC asked you to make a television series called The Barry Humphreys Scandals. And I want to play a song from that, a song that was never actually, I believe, broadcast. No. A song, a song sung by Dame Edna called True British Spunk. And it was in praise of British courage and fortitude. And apparently the BBC felt that there might have been another meaning to the name, which I was completely unaware of. It's rather puerile of them, wasn't it, Barry? Puerile. Yes. I'll, I'll play a little bit of here, and I think we need to preface this by saying that the opinions expressed by Dame Edna may not necessarily coincide with Barry Humphreys nor, nor the ABC. It is Dame Edna singing after all. He, it is? It, yes. True British spunk. See if you can figure <laughs> out why the beep, beep cringed from this. The English have a quality I'd like to sing about 
It's not the sort of quality bestowed on wog or kraut. When things are on the sticky side, you never throw a tis. A special something sees you through. I'll tell you what it is. Spunk, 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 you're so full of British spunk. True British spunk there from Dame Edna, writing in the style of Noel Coward, And it Barry. builds after that, it too. It builds, doesn't it? There's a choir and everything. Oh, yes, everything. <laughs> and in the studio at the BBC, there was a huge choir of people dressed in uniforms and dressed as nurses and sailors, and none of it went to air. All that money. The All money. that money. In those days... In the 60s, they spent a lot of money on experimental shows. That's how Monty Python got going. Yes, and in fact, there, there was good luck, there was good fortune to be had there for your generation. It was very, very time. interesting. Around about this time, you were li- when, as you were living in Britain, you, you recorded in your first book, More, More Please, that you had a very, very close brush with death. Yes. That, that is, it, it, it is so... It has a peculiar... Uh, tone of horror to it, this story, and, and I, it's probably rather distressing for you to recount, but I, 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 would, I would ask you to tell me that story if you can, if you well, can remember. Well, I, 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 I was preparing for my first Australian show, and I, I'd uh, finished in Oliver, and I went down to Cornwall. I'd been lent a small cottage on the cliffs in Cornwall, and I was sitting down there writing, writing the new show, and I had a huge pile of Australian women's magazines as references which I'd picked up at the offices of the Woman's Weekly in Fleet Street. And, and it was early, it was, must have been February, early February. There was still a bit of snow lying around on the ground, like laundry, you know, it looked. And I went for a walk in gumboots one morning with my then wife. And there was a small stream babbling away, but a fair bit of ice in it as well. And so I stepped gingerly on a a slimy sort of rock in the middle of it in order to cross this creek, slipped and sat. I think I was laughing, really. I sat in the bang in the water, and uh, she followed. But the trouble was that it became a sort of chute. We didn't stay in one place. It was so slippery, so icy. We moved. It was like one of those water slides that kids play on and it turned a sharp corner and went over the cliff seconds later i found myself on a ledge over sharp rocks in a remote part of cornwall my wife was on a ledge a little bit higher up and i had a tingling sensation in my right arm i realized i'd broken my arm i dislocated my shoulder and i was absolutely powerless a small waterfall was passing across my lap And who was going to help us? I had no idea. I remember sitting there for hours as the the light changed and I contemplated jumping. I was looking at the rocks thinking, well, if I land on my feet, I might be all right. Of course, I wouldn't have. I was a long way from the coast, from the bottom, and a long way from the top. It seemed at some point that my wife scrambled to the brink of the cliff and crawled to a cottage some mile and a half away, alerted someone, then fainted, 
and I was ultimately rescued by a helicopter and what seemed to be the entire cast of the Pirates of Penzance. All these local Cornish people came. I remember seeing the shadow of the cliff on the sea and I suddenly saw the profile of shadow bristling with other people and I knew I was being rescued. I was winched up into a helicopter, taken to a hospital, and I, that was my closest, the closest really that I've been to death since last year when I had a burst appendix without knowing it. So I've been nearly there several times. You had a burst appendix without knowing about it? Yeah, I was, uh, I came back to Australia for Christmas last year and uh, I had terrible abdominal pain. And the doctor said it was a virus, and so I went to Melbourne, and it got worse and worse, and I was doubled up. I got back to Sydney, saw another doctor who got me straight into hospital. Apparently, I'd been walking around for four days, dying. But it took me a while to get over that, and then I went on a big tour in America, and I'm okay now, but it's the nearest thing, really. So I'm very grateful. You know, I just enjoy every day. About ten years or so ago, Tony Moore, uh, a friend of mine, editor of Struth magazine, mm. decided to rehabilitate for him what was the funniest Australian movie of all time, which is the Barry McKenzie sequel. <laughs> Barry McKenzie holds his I've own. I've never heard anyone say it was good. And it's his conviction and uh, that it was the funniest Australian movie of all time and uh, a lost gem because at, its, at the time of its launch, it was, you know, I think, universally panned, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yes, it was absolutely panned by every single person who wrote about it. It's an important film in many ways, but uh, you ought to know that when at the screening was held for it at the Chevelle Cinema in Sydney, which I attended, it was packed out. Barry Crocker attended, gave a wonderful speech, and the audience was rocking with laughter right throughout the film. It's a deeply funny film. I think partly, right from the outset, because it records and invents so many marvellous things with the Australian vernacular. Here's a little bit of audio from that. This is Barry uh, McKenzie on the plane, on the way to, on Frog Air, on the, on the way to Paris, bumping into a bunch of his mates, including Clive James, at the back of the plane. Hey, Baza! Squad and bacon, you old bastard. Can you keep one down? Oh, just watch me. Going back to Oz, Baz. What route are you taking? No one, mate. Travelling with me, Auntie Edna. Jeez, cop the frog hosty, Baz. Bet she's a box tosser. I could be in there up to the apricots and off like a grenade. Plenty more of that in Paris, mate. Dunno. Bloke can pick up twice and knows what from one of them continental sheilas. Mate of mine knew a bloke who told him he had a friend whose mate's nose dropped off after going chockers with a frog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But enough time has gone by now. With I think people, I, I, perhaps there was just too much national embarrassment over that at the time. But, but people were, I think, yes, <laughs> although the audiences were laughing, you know, that, that was laughter that was inaudible to the critics. Indeed. And it was letting the side down. There was something unpatriotic about doing this kind of thing. It was later commercialised, you see. Then Hogan picked it up and and it became more sanitised, you see. And it yes, but without into... the rich vernacular, though. And that's the important part of it for me, the those great Australian phrases that are slowly being lost. And, and, and... also I like to invent phrases yes. and, and overload it. So it became... Was up to, up to the apricots one of yours, or was that something I uh, know, that was something I... You know, most one. of them are real things that I managed to ac- accumulate. <laughs> 
<laughs> we mustn't embarrass our listeners. No, we mustn't. Uh, Richard. No, we mustn't. But uh, I want to play a song that Barry Crocker performs in this as the Rev, Rev Kev, who's uh, Baz's um, uh, twin brother in this. It's, it's a song about the great... Australian uh, concept of a rat bag, about being a rat bag and what a rat bag actually is. And yes. I, I think this song can be credited for maintaining and restoring this important Australian phrase. And if anyone's uncertain about what a rat bag is, mm-hmm. Barry Crocker explains in this song. And if you think you're rat bag free, then just shake your family tree. See the great big raven rat bags falling out. Ah, rat That's Barry Crocker from Barry McKenzie Holds His Own. My guest in conversation today is Barry Humphreys, who performed in two roles in that film. What you can't tell from hearing that song is that's actually being performed in the Palace of Versailles. It is. It is, Barry, isn't it? Yes, we managed to get hold of a corner of it to do our filming. It was an expensive Australian film. I think it cost $300,000. But you've also got as a location in there the main concourse of Australia House, which in, in London, in the Strand, which you managed to pack full of Australians, having a barbecue... A, a fire. A, a fire, cracking open tins of Fosters. And how? And how how the, did you do that? Well, we, there was a very sympathetic High Commissioner at the time. I reckon. And then I remember right at the end when Barry Mackenzie returns to Sydney triumphant, having killed several vampires, that... Um, the script required the Prime Minister to appear. And Beresford said to me, who can we get to look like Gough Whitlam? And I said, Gough Whitlam. So we called up the press secretary and Gough appeared with Margaret at the end of that movie. It's unthinkable. And it was Gough who said, when Edna sort of rushed up to him uh, adoringly, and Gough said, she fell sort of onto her knees, and Gough said, Arise, Dame... Edna. And Edna picked that up, and that's when she got her damehood. Much disputed, but subsequently confirmed by the Queen herself. There's a picture in your book of Edna meeting the Queen and shaking hands with her, and there's no doubt who's the dominant person in the room. (laughs) And uh, I just wonder how Her Majesty took that, uh, shaking hands with Quite well, I think. Being relegated to being her straight woman. It's a sweet expression on her face there, I think. She's Madge Allsop in that picture. She is Madge Madge. I, I did a, a talk the other night in connection with this book and there was a, it was a lunch actually in Melbourne and there were a lot of women there. I remember at the previous lunch they'd all looked like Edna and last Thursday they all looked like Madge. They'd aged. <laughs> I, unfortunately, I said so. I, you see... I couldn't bring myself. I couldn't keep it to myself. I said something uncalled for. Uncalled for. You've mentioned the realm of the uncalled for (laughs) once again, Mr. Humphreys. How how unfortunate. How did it go over? Not too well. Well, there was a little silence and then a a forgiving laugh. (laughs) I think when the audience laugh, it is forgiveness you're getting from them, isn't it? It is. It is forgiveness. Forgiveness for your effrontery in standing up there trying to be funny. I I remember the the Dame Edna experience, the TV show that that Edna hosted in the very late 80s, I think, for the BBC. It was was a very original interview show because the guests hardly got to speak at all, really. Some of them didn't speak at all. 
But it was, Edna's theory was that an interview show is a, a monologue interrupted by strangers. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Edna talking to Jason Donovan. Now, this is Jason Donovan at the peak of his uh, international fame. He's the star of Neighbours. He's released hit songs. He's, had, uh, he's reached the top of the charts in the UK. He was no match for Edna when he appeared on the Dame Edna Experience. One day there was a little tap on my kitchen door and it was Jason's father tearing with this little bundle and he said, can I have a reading, Mrs Everidge, as I was then? I said, I don't read teacups anymore. He said, well, I've got an old Farrex bowl with a, the cat running away with a spoon on it, you know, Humpty Dumpty. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. And I said, well, I can't read that. But I, I was into something very special then, something called napomancy. I said, I could read the future from a kiddie's nappy. I could. <laughs> and luckily... By just releasing a safety pin, your future was unfurled before me. Please. No, I didn't, I, I didn't study it carefully, but I went, I went through the motions and I was looking. And you know what I saw, Jason? What did you see? I saw your chart success. I did. Just there. I saw a lot of number ones and I saw... I saw the occasional number two. Only I mean, the very occasional. But do you remember that was the day you poked your finger in my faff? <laughs> and it's a terrible thing when you poke your finger in someone's faff, Barry, surely, isn't it? <laughs> Must be. <laughs> it's an old-fashioned sewing machine like a, like a faff. And I'd always loved that name for a sewing machine, a faff. Do they have them here, do you think? I believe John? they do, and they, I think they have a few too many P's and F's in the name, don't they? But and Jason's doing well. At uh, last, uh, I believe it was in the 80s or 90s, where, where you uh, enjoyed a, a big smash show on Broadway in the United States. They finally got to see it. And, uh, there was something tiresome about witnessing that from Australia, because it's, it's waiting, waiting two decades for someone to get the joke. Is uh, You feel, oh, well, well, it's nice you get that you've gotten there at last. But it, I, I always thought it wouldn't be long before Dame Edna came a cropper. In America, well, th these things happen in uh, in their own way. I'd done a, an experimental show in the late seventies, which had failed and been described in the New York Times, no less, as abysmal. Abysmal. It was called abysmal, and what the New York Times does is, in the classified ads where it mentions all the names of the theatres and the shows, they have a quote from one of the critics. So it had the name of my show, and underneath it had abysmal. <laughs> that wouldn't have encouraged people, no, would it? No, no. And I remember, although we'd had a several very good performances, which inspired optimism in my heart and in that of the producers, the show failed, and I was uh, to wait another 25 years before I attempted an American show. And that time I did it on the advice of Joan Rivers. I called up Joan, and I said, Joan, I've reached, I think, a watershed. I think I've reached a point in England and Australia where I need to think of something else. She said, do a show in San Francisco. She said, You're, the village people, she said, will come. I wasn't too encouraged by that because I'd, I heard that several members of the village people had already died. But I went there. I, did a, I booked a theatre for two weeks and I ran for four months and then I went on to Broadway. 
and uh, everything changed, completely changed. Though I did find that the old Puritan thing starting up, political correctness didn't call itself that then, but it soon after did. And I do sometimes say, who are those people in the back of the audience with those tall black hats on? Who are they, I wonder? Of course, they're the old Pilgrim Fathers who are still there, (laughs) still there supervising. On the one hand, your book begins with some other grim observations. You say the worms who will devour your flesh have already hatched. That's a man conscious of impending to... Well, I am a bit conscious. Not really. That's a joke. But on the other hand, I think when you get to be old, or considerably older than you ever thought you would be, and you've had a few brushes with the reaper... Moments of morbidity do come to you. You'll find that yourself. You're still a young man. Indeed. Barry Humphreys, I've wanted you to come on this program for so long. I'm so glad you've been able to take the time to be with me for this whole hour today. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. And as you know, I like talking about myself. (laughs) Especially with you, Richard. Thank you. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feitler. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Conversations listeners, Jonathan Green here from RN's Return Ticket. On our show, we take you on journeys of the mind, no passport required. We'll chat with some fine guides in destinations you'd love to travel to. Come travel with us here on Return Ticket. You'll find all the episodes on the ABC Listen app.